Oh, good morning, good afternoon. Stephen, how are you? I am great, Randy. Thanks for having me join you today. Excellent. Really excited to have you. Uh, Everybody, this is episode number 135 of the Tech Sales Insights, uh, brought to you by Sales Community. For those that are members, thank you. For those that are not, Tucker will throw a a link on. You can get a free membership going to uh, salescommunity.com slash summer free. Uh, really excited to have Stephen DeFranco on. Uh, we had some great times working together back in the day at HP. Uh, he's currently executive partner at Gartner, uh, working in the uh, sales practice, practice and go-to-market practice. We have a really cool and uh, potentially controversial topic today. Enterprise buyers need sellers less. What's a seller to do? Uh, we're sponsored by Gong, who's the uh, Re- revenue intelligence sponsor of sales community. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about them relative to kind of coaching platforms and things like that that will be uh, coming down the road. Uh, Steven lives in San Mateo, uh, one of my old stomping grounds back in the uh, 80s uh, when I ran the West for EMC. Uh, He's got two kids, empty nester, still is a huge cyclist. So you got to be careful to hopefully go on some bike paths and uh, you're not where people are driving their cars and cell phones and stuff. It is a dangerous sport. There's no question about it. And uh, we've got a couple of intro comments. So from uh, Henri Richard, who's a uh, partner of yours at uh, Gartner and uh, was a longtime uh, EVP at NetApp, did a great job there. Uh, Henri says, we're all fortunate that uh, SDF, as uh, you do go by, uh, decided to be a GTM executive. His successful leadership affected uh, positively the lives of thousands of people. I consider him a true professor of the art of go-to-market and was privileged in being able to call him my colleague. Uh, Kevin Hooper, who's uh, another uh, friend of ours from uh, the HP days, so that he had the pleasure to meet and work with Stephen about 13 years ago. can't believe it was that long ago. And throughout that time, he has consistently shown himself to be knowledgeable, thoughtful, considerate, analytical, and most of all kind. He has a genuine knack for providing value, whether it's to a team member or a customer or a partner, his willingness to assist, approachability and depth of professional expertise has made him an appreciated figure and sought after resource in our industry. So uh, two really nice uh, commentaries there. And uh, I would just, you know, chime in as a, um, as, you know, teammate and partner back in HP day, it was uh, awesome collaborating with you always great, sincere, authentic, working together. We did a lot on the you know partner side of things and go to market. And as I was saying before, I was always really jealous. Your QBR decks were always awesome. So uh, <laughs> still something I aspire to. And uh, I guess on the one hand, you don't miss those days, but the other hand, we you know, pr- probably miss them a little bit, right? Just getting ready for that. Yeah, battle. It, 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 <laughs> you don't miss them when you're doing them, but in the past, you kind of, you kind of have good memories about them, right? We got a lot done. We got a lot done at HP. We got a lot done. We'd be huddled. I'd have, you know, Linda Williams and Jazz and, you know, others. And we'd have in our own bunkers, you know, getting drilled the night before. And, you know, the, the Mark Hurd, you know, person that, you know, trying to tell you that for me. Okay, so, Randy, what's the market share of the server in the central region? Right? Yeah. Mark Mark liked to do diagnostic exams. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah. Front and back. Anyway, so you're... Um, uh, so we get into your professional background. So uh, you went to Montclair State University, and we're actually a radio and television broadcasting uh, major. Is that right? That's right. I wanted to be a TV engineer. That's exactly awesome. what I wanted to do. 
And he had a couple claim to fame with the uh, first Jumbotron in Times Square and then one of the first uh, high-def screens in sports. That's right. We, uh, when I was at Sony, I had the opportunity to work on the team that uh, delivered high definition. So if you love that really wide screen in your home, I'm glad you're enjoying it. We put a lot of work to make sure that you can have that picture in your house. Awesome. And then your uh, first job out of school was at Technosphere? Which was an IT dealer. And um, you know the channel became part of my career for the rest of my career. And, and really the place that I found um, a home in sales was with channels and partners and, and relationship selling. Awesome. And then you work for a lot of great companies, a lot of great roles. So uh, if you can maybe just kind of quickly uh, buzz through that. Yeah, I, about 10 years at Sony, which was an experience in the 80s where you could do everything from product management to sales to, to executive management. And that was wonderful. I got an opportunity to go then to iOmega. We was kind of the beginning of external storage. And, you know, today, uh, you know, we were putting hard drives into machines long before we started doing it in servers. And that was an incredible experience to learn how to bring in new products to market, you know, and and it continued on at MacStore running uh, marketing and parts of the channel sales organization. And then uh, at AMD where, um, where we had no market share at all when we started. And that's right, got to also work with Henri Richard, you know, and at the end we were able to actually crawl out that 10% market share, which changed, I think the IT industry. And, you know, that's when we really started to see an opportunity for the first ideas of servers being used for multi-tenant use cases. And that got to be very exciting. And that really led eventually to me to have an opportunity at HP where I got to lead the uh, America's channels um, for um, PCs, printers, and for servers. And that's where you and I connected. And then after that, I, I went to Broadcom for a while to start the IoT group and try to see how that sales was gonna work in the next generation. And nowadays we're working with companies um, through Gartner that are doing IoT, 5G, and every other industry you can imagine. Um, so it's been a it's been a long and wonderful career. Awesome. And you've got a couple of board spots with Momentum Micro and Aspinity. Aspinity, yeah. So uh, Momentum Micro is one of the specialty bars that we helped build up at while we were at HP, and Aspinity allows me to stay in the IoT world, and that's the one of the companies that is really striving to start to see how we can bring AI all the way down to the micro edge into the actual endpoint devices. So still getting an opportunity to do some board work as well as uh, the good work we're doing at Gartner. Awesome. So certainly impressive career. If you, if you look back, right, there's obviously lots of things you've done great, but any kind of one or two things in particular that you'd say have made you successful? I, I had the opportunity, and I, I tell this to young people a lot, who are interested in sales. I think I had the opportunity to be taught early on, and this goes back to the Sony days, that selling was as much a science as it was an art, that it required the diligence of really doing your homework. Um, Kathy Lepchak, who was a colleague of Randy and I's at HP, used to have this saying that nothing replaces the homework. And I think one of the things that, that salespeople need to never forget is that that research and that background work um, uh, being very prepared is still one of the best tools you can do in sales. The ability to sell is an art. The ability to be prepared to sell is a science. And I think that was one of the lessons that I kept with me in the back of my head 
they work particularly well in channel sales because channel sales to a great extent is a lot of math work, right? You're dealing with channels, you're dealing with distribution modes, uh, you're dealing with how much material are you moving in and out in retail, you have these 13 week cycles. I think that skill or that, that appreciation helped me build the skills I needed to do better, do well, and especially in the types of selling that I was mostly focused on. Oh, great. And uh, I mean, given with, with LinkedIn, all the tools available today, uh, would you, I guess I, I would argue, I'll make the point to see what you think. I think people are still, reps are still not as prepared as they need to be given how fast and easy and simple it should be to get all this information. What's your perspective? My perspective is actually the preparedness issue has become more critical than ever before. The selling um, ecosystem is more complex today. Um, Gardner has a static statistic that if you go back 10 years, a typical buyer either was able to make the decision themselves. This is doesn't matter if it's tech. This could be buying right. plate. This could be buying, you know, uh, 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 supply line materials, whatever it might be. But the typical buyer 10 years ago, they made the decision themselves or only had one or two other people they had to collaborate with to make a decision. Today, the average is six, six people. The other thing that's changing a lot is we're seeing this in all industries is buyers are going from knowing being domain experts. And you and I lived at a time when we sold to domain experts. The people we sold to understood our technologies as well as we did. Now what's happening is in almost all B2B industries, buyers are becoming professional buyers. They're getting hired out of school. A lot of them have MBAs. They're getting put in the job and the job is optimize your vendor selection. Streamline your vendor choice system. Come up with a quantitative way to determine one vendor versus another, right? They're not really interested in what they're buying. They're interested in how they're buying. This is an incredible, important statement. They are about how to buy, not what to buy. And when you're dealing with people who are how to buy, you have to start to become more analytical in that selling process. One of the reasons you see the growth of sales rev stack tools is because we now need this um, quantitative tool set to be able to better understand how to approach buyers. Um, and we, we as an industry, B2B as a selling industry is going to become much more of a schooled and structured process in the next 10 years ahead of us. And, and chief sales officers are going to have to learn to adapt to that. Awesome. Uh, very cool. And um, now getting into kind of Gartner, a little commercial maybe. Uh, tell us uh, about the Gartner sales the Gartner program. program. Yeah. So Gartner, we, many people, especially your audience, because it's a lot of tech people will know Gartner's technology service organization and the foundation of the magic quadrant and the hype curve and, and, all of the analysis they do around different technologies. There's actually a whole other side of Gartner, which are practices. So there's a practice around HR that, that HR leaders can subscribe to so they can stay current on all HR practices, best practices in HR regulations, compliance rules, et cetera. There's a practice around supply chain, which not only talks about the technology of supply chain, but the, but the global economic changes that are going on between supply chains and how supply chains are managed. There's a, there's a CMO organization for chief marketing officers that talks about tools, technologies, and not in just in the tech industry, but in all industries, how marketing is evolving, how it's changing, what the best practices are. 
Sales organization is really interesting because we actually work more with non-tech companies than tech companies. We work with companies in the freight industry, the financial industry, the manufacturing industry, the chemical industry, um, uh, uh, global products, mm. consumer products industry. And what happens is you get to see sales, the commonalities of selling across all these different B2B industries and some B2C industry. And you start to see how buyers are different in each one of these industries and how they're similar. And one of the reasons I make the point that I believe that buyers are moving into more of a process of how they buy versus what they buy is we're seeing this idea of a generational shift in buyers occurring in every every industry we work with. Interesting. Buyers are getting younger. As they get younger, they're their approach to buying changes. They're almost always now, very often now, not being managed by a BU. They're buying out of a central purchasing environment. So their, their rules of the engagement have changed and sellers need to adapt to those changing rules of engagement. Excellent. We're going to d- dive into some of that in a little bit. Uh, I've always been curious, I would say I'm biased, but uh, would you say that, I'll just say that sales profession within tech sales is more advanced than it is in non-tech industries and fields? I think that they, so let me put this against something like that is another really deep technology, like, like material science sales, right? Let's take a look at that, right? So you're talking about people who sell for 3M or DuPont or any of these kind of materials. Stuff. This is really cutting edge technology. I mean, I, I know we feel that what we do is the leading edge of all technology, but, you know, trying to make a, trying to make a module, a, a molecule, and make that stable in multiple environments is a hell of a lot of science behind that. Yeah. And the people who sell that are mostly chemical engineers. Um, and, you know, I don't know about you, but of all the engineering things, I, the one that scared me the most about at school would have been chemical engineering. That was by far the hardest one. I mean, these are really brilliant people. And what's interesting about it is I think the tech sales, we've been quicker to adopt technology in our selling process because it's our world and we appreciate what it means. Right? So we were very early adopters of Salesforce.com. We were very early adopters of, 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 of data territory analysis modeling, right? We were very, very early adopters of cost of sales modeling. Other industries adopted that slower but the, what you're now seeing happen is those industries rapidly bringing technology in. So the, you know, the rev tech stack, if you look at it today, where a number of years ago, most of those conversations really were technology for technology companies. Now they're finding a lot of their customers are in other industries. And I think that's a really healthy thing for the sales industry. Awesome. And uh, uh, Javier, thanks for your questions. I should have said earlier. So for those that are uh, listening or watching, a uh, reminder, you can see us or hear us. We cannot see you, uh, but uh, feel free to post any questions or any comments here. So uh, he asks or says, uh, thanks for all your insights, Stephen. Question for you with all the complexity and dysfunction occurring with buyers. Love the Gartner research, and I'm a big fan. How is Gartner's global sales org solving for this internally? Is there an appetite for exploring a sales performance partner to help elevate slash transform the GTM, go to market, and improve the most critical outcomes and KPIs of your sellers? 
I guess well, the question is, do you do that? I would think you have some of that you, you do on your own and you advise others as well, correct? Yeah. So Gardner uses a sales model, which is one that um, is the one that we actually encourage others to use. So we're very much an eat our own belief um, system company. We have three types of sell sellers at Gardner. Um, business development people who do not control any accounts. They are given a large amount of accounts. Their job is to get contract one. And the moment they secure contract one, it is handed over to an account manager. They never hold an account. So that's the epitome of hunting. It is the epitome of hunting. And the reason for that, there's, there's two core reasons to do this. Number one, there's a concept around selling economics which is the amount of time a seller will actually take to do something based on how they're compensated. And the problem with the hunter-farmer model, this hybrid model that everybody has always been trying to do for years is, inevitably, it takes so much time to win a new account, could take years, it takes away too much time from you making the number on the accounts you have. And the reason the hybrid, reason you always hear people complain that why aren't my salespeople getting new accounts is not because they're not capable, it's because the economics actually of compensation work against them. So by separating that and putting, going and saying, look, I am going to dedicate 5% of my sales team to be nothing but hunters. I'm going to pay them very well when they win. And they're going to, you know, get their standard salary when they don't. But they're going to get these big paydays. And once they get that payday, we hand it over. Is a higher percentage of close rate than if you do hunter, if you do hybrid. But here's another part of this, Randy. The kind of personality that does well hunting is not the personality that does well farming. And we forget the psychographic part of salespeople. Um, now, one of the things we've been, that a lot of industries have tried to do is hire sellers that are athletes, meaning you could do anything. But the truth is there's a, the people who are great at hunting tend to be that kind of person who really actually likes to go after the win and never gives up. The average um, new um, logo win um, can, in many industries, take over a year. Yeah. Not uncommon. So what you want to do, what we do is we have a small part of our garden in each of the practices, a small part of our team that does business development, relatively large team that does account management. But you'd be shocked at how many accounts account managers handle. Um, traditionally, if I take a look at the old dealer model like we had in the tech industry, an account manager might have a territory that's maybe you know, relatively easy to get around within a day, you can get anywhere in a day, maybe you had 35 accounts pops. You know, the, today's model is that same account manager should have 100, 120 accounts. They're saying, well, how can they possibly heavily serve that? Because the way they do it is there's a third team, which is the customer success team, and the customer success team is really the team that's taking care of the day-to-day -day customer needs. Right. And I'm not talking about making sure the order gets processed. I mean, talking to the customer about what they need next. One of the Gartner pieces of Gartner research um, revealed that customers tend to stay with their suppliers, not because of what they last purchase, but because they feel like that supplier understands what they need to purchase next. And the problem with the account manager role is, it's not really good at that. Account managers roles are really good at the operational commercial process. 
customer success managers are really good at looking, hey, what are you, how are you using my product and have you thought about using this or have you thought about adding that? So this idea of a three of a triangle model of business development, account management and customer success, that's the model we use. And it's the model that has proven when deployed to give you the best cost of sales, the best predictability of outcome uh, and the best um, utilization of people. Gotcha. And then uh, just to Javier's point, you're kind of more on the, I'll say, professor pro- professor side of things, right? Co- coaching, advising, you don't have right. the sales team yourself. Right. So if Gartner is interested in, you know, getting, improving their outcomes and KPIs and things like that as sellers, that would be somebody who's running the sales org, correct? Yeah. And that's another important thing to think through. When, when you set up your sales organization, there's this aspect of delivery. And you should, whatever you're selling, I don't care if it's lumber products or medical devices or chemicals, you need to start to think about how the many, the different interactions with the customer. And the old concept was, well, the account manager owns the customer, so they must be able to do everything. We tried to create super people. And candidly, that's failing more and more as the buyer generation changes, they get younger, they're more interested in how they buy versus what they buy. And the number of people you have to touch in a company increase. So the commercial motion, let's call it that for a second, the selling process, the commercial motion now really requires a number of different touch points. One of those touch points is an executive partner because we we do a certain kind of delivery. We're not the product, we're not the research, we're not the analyst, but we provide a roadmap for how to use those. The customer service person, the customer success person is always looking for the next piece of material that that customer needs to have. And the account manager is looking for, have we met what we need to meet to get a renewal? So if you think about it, that's the orchestration that's occurring inside of Gardner. And it's the kind of orchestration that we see B2B companies needing to evolve to. Gotcha, awesome. All right. Well, anyway, uh, Javier, thanks for that. And uh, some good tangents there. So again, for those watching along, feel free to make any comments or ask any questions as well. So uh, our title topic, uh, enterprise buyers need sellers less. What's a seller to do? So uh, probably a bit uh, controversial, but modern sales organizations, uh, to your point, are shedding the notion of relationships and focusing on optimizing buyer engagements. Could you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, and continuing with this theme, um, what is in the concept of relationship was built around the thesis that the buyer was going to be in that role for a very long period of time. Um, and for those of your audience that are from the tech world, you know we we've experienced this growing up, where we may have been working with a customer at an account for years. Um, and if you think about it, we built a relationship with the person, maybe the chief engineer or the person who was most the business unit leader or the buyer. We didn't really build a relationship with the company. Um, now, in a world where roles are changing more frequently, buyers are becoming more transactional. Um, there's six more more people that are part of a buying decision. The salesperson needs to have a relationship, not with a buyer or a customer, but with a company. And there's no one human who can do that. 
So it's this idea of starting to understand how to map the different points within the company that needs to be touched. The beginnings of this was probably about 10 or 15 years ago when there was a lot of push in B2B companies to do executive sponsorships. And the idea was, well, let's create two very high level relationships between ourselves and our customer. And that'll somehow trickle everything down. Um, and that's still a great idea. And I, there's a lot we can talk about around exec, how to make executive sponsorship work well. But more importantly, it's the, um, it's being as a chief sales leader or chief revenue officer, you need to start to have somebody mapping all the points of the account and all the points of your company and how those are all going to interact. You have to become much better at orchestration. And a modern commercial organization is an orchestration model. And the CRO conducts that, which means the CRO's role is going to change from spending a lot of time in the field trying to close the big deal to spending a lot of time in headquarters orchestrating all the deals. And that's going to be one of the big changes for CROs coming forward. So, so based on that, then would you say buyers are spending less time with the sellers or with vendors than what they used to? Gardner's number now is that buyers spend less than 37% of their time with all the vendors they talk to. Think about that. You're a buyer. So and that's, that's less than what it would have been before. It was in the 60s before um, the pandemic. The pandemic accelerated a lot of different things. One of the things that accelerated was that buyers realized that they could do a lot of their job without, without the salesperson's help. Here, here's another interesting piece of information. Not only do they spend less time with us as sellers, they're spending significantly more time looking for independent information. And believe me, it's available, right? Probably everything about your company is available one way or another independently. And part of professional buying today, this younger generation of buyers, they have a tendency of being, not that they don't trust sellers, but they're not interested in getting all their information from sellers. They very much want to get their information independently. And then what do you do with the seller? What's this person's job? Is it just to give me the bid and the price? That relationship between the buyer and seller is going to get redefined. Sellers nowadays, and this is in our Gartner research, must become very good at helping buyers understand all the information that they've gathered independently and help them get to a decision versus sell them a product. Nope. They need then, to help buyers get to a decision versus sell them a product or service. And most of the time I would imagine now versus five or 10 years from now, assuming gardeners do their homework like you know, salespeople would do their homework beforehand. They kind of come in with probably some preconceived notions, which could be a good thing or a bad thing, right? There's a, and there's a, it's exactly the problem. And there's a piece of research that we came out with um, about six months ago, which said this. Buyers who completely ignore the sellers, don't use them at all, want to buy completely online, right? I, I just want to go on your website and buy what I want to buy actually underpurchase and are more dissatisfied than ones that do their independent research and then use the selling the commercial organization at their customers, uh, at their at their suppliers to better understand their buying decision. This the sales role and sales roles don't go away, but they do evolve. They move from this relationship, look, 
I have a relationship with you. If something goes wrong, my salesperson will take care of it too. I've done my research. Now I want to hear what that salesperson is going to do to help me organize my thought process. Now think about this as a seller. You and I came up in a world where we had to know our product backward and forward. We were drilled on it. We were tested on it, right? Um, that's not going to be so important in the future. What's going to be important in the future is, do you understand how to access your company's resources for information? You become a smaller orchestrator. So your CRO is a big orchestrator. You as a salesperson becomes a smaller orchestrator. Um, and this is going to change the dynamics, not just between buyer and seller, but between sales leadership and sales, field sales. And then what about if you have, I mean, we kind of grew up, right? Large, large sales orgs, you'd be, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, yep. kind of that whole, whole notion. So do you see a pivot on that as well? Yeah. And this has actually been the pivot that's been the hardest for CROs to get their hands around because let's face it, in the world, corporate world, the amount of people who work for you and the amount of budget you control has a lot to do with how big the seat you have at the C-suite, right? I mean, nobody wants to run a smaller organization. But here's the reality of it. The, a salesperson pre-pandemic who was on trains and planes and automobiles were spending about half of their time in transport, moving their body around. Now, if you just cut that down in half again, and you only spend quarter of your time moving your body around, think about how much more selling capacity time you have. And here's yeah. the other side of it. The seller's only going to give 30% of all their time. The buyer's only going to give 37% of their time to sellers. That's it. So you better make that time really efficient. And one of the things that buyers love about this medium that we're using is it's time constrained. It is very time constrained. Yours, I'm going to have from 9 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. That's your time slot. You as a seller better figure out how to use time really well. And you as a seller better not think that, well, my solution for that is I'm going to show up at their doorstep. That's not going to work. In the future, sales organizations, CROs, are going to have to start to deal with how they manage seller time. And the only way that this is going to work is that sellers are going to spend more time in their home office or in their workspace. They're going to go in the field far fewer times and they're going to handle more accounts. And candidly, they're probably going to do a better job hmm. because they're going to have to learn how to work in that 30 minute or 20 minute period of time. Yeah. So I'll, I'll push back and totally fine for us to agree to disagree. So in any sales cycle, if you'd overlay more of the old school model where, okay, you're going to go meet for you know lunch or drinks or dinner which is more than your 15 or 30 or 45 minute window, you're able to get a lot more. What's a person thinking? What's going on? They probably have some concerns or some perceptions that are wrong. So I still would argue that that value of that face, I appreciate how the dynamics are changing, information changing, but still, you know, the value of, um, you know, pushing your sellers to go out face to face versus just hiding behind the screens, I would think still has to have huge value. Statistically, it does not. And really? we have the statistics to prove it. It That's adds no revenue increase. It adds no productivity improvement. In fact, it's negative on the productivity improvement. Interesting. Um, now, you said something really insightful. If I have an opportunity to sit down with a customer in a 
comfortable situation for an hour and a half and really talk about the depth of their problem is that valuable and i would argue it's probably incredibly valuable it probably doesn't mean you're going to get more orders you may understand the account better you may be more sensitive to the person's situation but at the end of the day the new generation of buyers are buying based on need availability price they're they're buying machines and they're in they are about the art of buying not what they're purchasing and that is a big difference that we have to get over i'm not saying you shouldn't take an opportunity to have a dinner i don't think there's anything i think you'll still continue to see conferences occur i think those are still going to happen they there's a tremendous amount of content that a buyer can accumulate in two days at a conference that they could take them months right. to do on their own i don't think that doesn't mean that you're not going to have some um, have some opportunities to have um, one-on-ones or bring your boss in to meet a customer. I think those are, will still occur, but they're going to occur less frequently. And when I hear about us, and this happens a lot, a CRO who's spending 80% of their time on the road, I know they're missing the bigger picture. I know they're running a model that isn't working any longer. And it certainly doesn't work when we have tools like these. Gotcha. So then to help with some of that coaching that we would do kind of wind, windshield time, now you have to rely on middle you know, manager. The org is, you know, kind of first or second line managers to do some of that coaching as well as some tools like Gong and others, correct? So one of the big things that, you know, and I watched you do this a lot in your career and, and others of your peer group do was, you know, they had a lot of years of experience selling and they were, they get into the field and, and they would have an opportunity to coach a young salesperson or a mid-career salesperson. And we kind of use the regional managers as the people in the field to make sure we hit the number every quarter. You know, you, you have the mechanics of making sure we hit the number, but it, you know, truthfully, you know, Randy would come in and do a lot of super value coaching. That work's going to have to move down that super coaching, the ability to coach young sellers is going to have to move to the regional manager position. That job is going to have to change and, and grow, I think, a lot. The other thing about that job is it's going to vary now because probably a region is not going to just be, I've got eight sellers or 10 field sellers. You might be having to orchestrate 10, three, four field sellers, three inside persons and a customer success person. So what's going to happen now is that job is going to really evolve into being more complex. And I think what you're going to find is super successful. The people who are going to be companies in B2B who are going to continue to run successful sales organizations are ones that are going to get better at developing their regional managers to be better coaches and ability to orchestrate multiple selling jobs. The ability to actually do account management planning. I mean, do it consistently, predictably, in a way that actually coaches the seller and prepares the company. Um, I think you're gonna find tools will come online to help that regional person be able to make choices and decisions. Uh, and we'll find tools that will help speed things up. And one of the examples are, you know, we've done, Gardner has, and I've been part of a process to decide how is AI gonna be used in the sales, sales? Where is that gonna fit in? And, you know, AI can, generative AI, could create a lot of the content and responses that would be very valuable to buyers and do it in a much more automated and orchestrated way. 
So these tools will be part of what the regional manager is going to have. I think the regional job or that, that if you think of salesperson, regional manager, CRO, kind of these three tiers of selling. I realize some companies have more, but just think yeah. of it that way. That middle tier, that management tier is going to move from, I'm putting you in the Northwest to hit the Northwest number to you've got to orchestrate the Northwest territory. And that's going to become a very different job. And then, uh, so besides you're talking about the AI, generative AI, once you're in the sales cycle. So Troy uh, brings up a great question. Uh, Is Gartner seeing companies leveraging AI to accelerate gathering business intelligence for sellers? So that would be a lot of that, I guess, kind of pre-sales information, correct? Yeah. So um, I was with, um, I was having uh, dinner last night with a friend who also runs a large part of the sales organization for a public um, company in the, that we would all know. And um, he was telling me how he had to prepare something for the CEO for a customer visit. It took him all weekend. He said then on Sunday night, he went to ChatGPT, put in the question and got almost everything he had done, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of, of places where sales leaders can start to use this tool well. AI, um, Gardner's position on generative AI is there's a couple, there's four different things that a, a CEO, C-suite, and specifically CRO need to really think about. Um, one is um, understanding where to put it and not to put it in your, in your process. And to use it to generate research, which you just identified. It's a pretty benign way to use it. Do you use it to generate bids and quotes and proposals? Um, do, do you actually use it to create your presentations? Do you use it to um, make predictions on where you should be and shouldn't be selling? How do I deploy resources? You know, these are, these are going to become vision decisions that the CRO is going to have to make. The CRO is going to have to take on a very, this is different than picking up anything else they've ever picked up in the tech stack. Um, you know, I need a CRM. Do I use Salesforce or any other one? Somebody go help make that decision. Here, I think the CRO is going to have to say, where does this get used in my selling process? How do I orchestrate this into my organization? Um, and then the other part of it is it's going to change. Um, it could change what people do. I'll give you one example, Randy. Generative AI is that. It generates. And so as a generator, it can or cannot be perfectly what you want it to be. Someone's going to have to edit the output of that generator. Now, we don't really carry editors in sales organizations, but somebody in sales ops or sales enablement is going to have to start to become an AI editor. Yeah. You're going to have to hire for people who know how to write questions into an AI generator. Now, that's a skill you've never looked for before, have you? So, again, this kind of gets to the point that the job of the CRO is going to change. It's going to become a lot more complex than, you know, hey, I got to hire great people, train great people, get in front of customers and close deals. That is no longer the job of the CRO. That's the job of the regional person. The job of the CRO is going to be orchestrating a complex organization. Interesting. So, uh, Troy, thanks for that. And then Troy and Eric, I think, are both at your old uh, company, Lenovo. Uh, hey. Eric, Eric, thanks for your point. Good points about time management for sure. Um, and what do I talk about, you know, coaching? Uh, and I'm, maybe I'm cynical here in my old age, but I would see, you know, when we were young sellers, we just would be sponges. We take anything in from anybody, put it in a repertoire. And I almost get a feeling that people are kind of less coachable these days or have less of an appetite mm -hmm. to 
improve and kind of soak it all in and add it to what they're doing? You know, it's um, there's two parts of this that are very interesting. One is a lot of us fell into sales. Um, you know, very few of us went to college saying, "Ooh, I want to leave college and be a salesperson. Right. Um, many of us went to either engineering schools or business schools, you know, what have you. I wanted to be a TV engineer. Um, so we kind of fell into it and somebody said, hey, I think you have the right personality and maybe skill set for this. And yeah, we were sponges. We also grew up in a generation where, you know, truthfully, we came up when you would go work for a company and learn everything you possibly could learn. That was kind of the concept. And you wouldn't, you would stay that, stay at that company for as long as, frankly, they'd have you. I think today, the younger generation, people are coming out, many people are coming out looking for sales jobs and they're going into sales roles. There's there's more sellers being hired today in the United States anyway than it's ever been in the history in B2B sales, B2B sales, and ever. Um, just look at any of the tech companies that you see in all of the inside call centers that are getting set up. Um, I think one of the problems with that model is, and, and we ran, I don't know if you remember, but at HP, we had many call centers and the average call center was 300 people, right? That would be about a call center size for us in, the, in our in our PC side of our business, as an example. Not so much in enterprise, but in PC and printers. And one of the dif- difficulties with this is is coaching large groups of people, um, and and doing the whole weeding out the ones that are good and the ones that are not good. And I think one of the pro- one of the difficulties is we these and this gets back to my thesis about regional sales leaders. Those regional sales leaders are going to have to take on a lot more of adapting coaching. For those younger people, I don't think it's that they lack an interest in learning so much as we haven't done enough work to teach them um, at the level we need to teach them at. Gotcha. All right. Very cool. And uh, Eric asks regional partners, sales mode, how do you see that changing? So I guess in in general, kind of partnering and leveraging the channel should only increase, correct? Yeah. And let's go beyond tech for a second, right? So you know, intermediaries channels are used throughout the insurance industry, have been for years, continue to be. Um, um, many, many, many industries, including things like transport, have some form of a channel or secondary selling organization that that is part of their selling matrix. And one of the things we're seeing is a movement more towards that than away from that. Now, part of that is that the the source of, of revenue, the, the number of customers, as that number increases, the ability to reach them with direct sales force becomes more challenging. So you end up using some form of intermediary or partners. The, the second part of that is that as buyers become more like professional buyers, one of the things that intermediaries give them the ability to do is, col- is to consolidate purchases of multiple manufacturers by one purchase. So you're probably throughout B2B, you're going to see actually more movement towards channels than movement away from channels. And prior to the pandemic, we started seeing companies trying to do more direct. I'll hire more salespeople. I'll sell more direct. You know, But one of the things that the, the pandemic taught us was the, the buffer ability of, and I'm not just talking about physical, I mean, the process of being able to make sales happen and um, have enough selling resources is very hard to scale in a direct model, it's much easier to scale in a channel model. So what you're going to start seeing is, and what we're already seeing throughout the world is, 
um, a lot more emphasis on how channels and partners and intermediaries are going to play a role in sales organizations. And this gets back to the regional person. Today, a lot of industries still separate the channel selling organization from the direct selling organization. Um, usually we find that creates more conflict. Gartner sees that as a conflict creator, not a conflict solver. Probably in the future, that regional manager will be finding that mix themselves. That regional manager job is really going to change in the future. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, I'd always say the first line managers really run the company, right? Because yeah. they're the ones who've got the closest, they're their day-to-day, you know, having the, the most influence. So those are the ones you really got to you got to nurture. So we're uh, um, <clears throat> getting on here with time. So if I ask, we'll get some sh- shorter uh, shorter answers because we had some great, great questions. Uh, so what does this mean for the uh, sales tech stack and maybe approach it? I know Gartner can't have favorites, but if you look at the different categories, you know, kind of best of breed versus working well together. How, how do you think about that? Well, I think the magic quadrant does a really good idea on vision versus execution. And we, you know, I, I have to say, no matter what you think of the magic quadrant, there's an amazing amount of work and thought that goes into those quadrants. And, and uh, you know, people always ask me, are these just a, you know, a game? And no, there's actual great thought that's put into them. <laughs> I, do, I do think there's an important piece on the tech stack that that all industries are going to have to be faced with. And that's this idea of unification versus best of breed. And it's very easy to go and pick five tech stack things that are all the best of breed. The question becomes how you want them to work together. And to get back to my thesis of orchestration, you know, having a tech stack that doesn't allow you to share data between parts of the tech stack is going to make that much harder. You know, to give you an example, sentiment analysis technologies are you know, truly valuable. They work really well. They, they give... They give a people they give, the output is much more um, ob, ob, object oriented than opinion oriented um, and a really valuable tool. And it also allows you to really shorten, uh, increase the accuracy of your forecast and shorten the amount of time you have to evaluate it. Making sure that that ties in correctly with whatever CRM system you use is probably equally important. And I think what's going to happen is, and this is, gets back to this, my point about AI. CROs are going to have to spend more time looking at what that tech stack is and being a bigger participant in the objectives of the tech stack. They've got to say, this is my vision for the tech stack. This is my objective. And by the way, I'm going to put dollars instead of in salespeople, I'm putting dollars here. And that dollar movement shift is probably one of the things you want to look for. That's going to be an early indicator of change in sales organizations. When they start saying, I'm willing to have two fewer salespeople because I need more of my tech stack. Gotcha. And then from a high level, do you look at the tech stack in certain categories? We don't. Um, and Gartner will never recommend one over another. Um, we do have for our clients um, tools to help them make those choices. And we even have tools to help them purchase it. But um, we will, we don't and never will give opinions uh, beyond giving you an idea of whether or not this product has a vision and whether they're actually able to execute on it. Because otherwise we're, we're overstepping a boundary that we don't want to overstep. 
Interesting. So from uh, Tim Page, uh, he says, good thoughts. I need to process a bit, so I'll not comment, <clears throat> but I have a question. What you think is best practice around demand gen now, SDR, BDR, et cetera, a lot of BS measurements, especially since COVID flying around. <laughs> I've been talking to a lot of sales leaders with various opinions, but no one feels like they have it nailed down. So you've got the, yeah, you know, I call it you know, BDR, SDR, probably inbound effort you know, kind of catching those as well as in what you do for outbound and then kind of the different levers in terms of laundry list of things that, you know, I'll say marketing can do as well. Here is the biggest mistake that's being made here. There is this statement of, well, I'm just going to stick more stuff in the funnel, right? The problem isn't how much you put in the funnel. The question is the dwell time between the stages of the pipe. This, let me say that again. It's the dwell time between the stages in the pipe. What you really need in a good SDR, BDR model is looking at when I bring something into the pipe, how, what speed and rate does that go through? What's my dropout? Dropout is the number of things that fall out by each stage. Um, and, and do I have what, what I would commonly call blockages? So you know, do I get to stage three and everything just stops? Really great pipeline management. You have a relatively similar dwell time between every single stage. And it's very clear what, not only what happens in the stage, but what makes it move to the next stage. So what I think the problem is not, we've done a lot of work on, hey, can I get a hundred leads in? Can I get a thousand leads? Well, I'll have blitz days and we do all this stuff with leads, but we don't spend nearly enough time looking at dwell time. And really great B2B sales organizations um, who are working on this issue of, hey, I wanna find more customers, spend a lot of time on the dwell. The second piece is they they make sure someone owns that deal until it's closed and then hand it over. The other problem with this model is it often gets dumped in the hands of an account manager who's already too busy trying to make sure they're making their number on the current accounts. You have to remember this is a really important thesis. Account managers, by definition, are actually more focused on renewal of current customers or continuing business with current customers than new customers. And until you break that in your head and say, oh, I really need somebody who just looks after new customers. Hunter Farmer, yeah. Yeah, you, you got to separate that out. And that's usually where these, these systems don't fail because the BDR model's wrong. The systems fail because you're focusing too much on what goes in the funnel and not enough on how it goes through the pipe. Awesome. Uh, and from Sarah, so uh, thanks uh, for that, Tim. Uh, from Sarah, we have uh, fascinating insights in the Q1 CSO report. Gartner addressed the talent crisis CSOs are facing. Gartner predicted that by 2028, half of sales leadership roles will be filled by individuals from historically underrepresented groups. Thank goodness. Uh, in your opinion, what impacts will this have in the sales profession? No, I think it's going to, I think there's some, yeah. So thank you, Sarah. And yes, that is one of our CSOs are facing um, kind of a, a unique problem in that um, there, what, what was happening for a good part of the first 20 years of this century was we were basically stealing salespeople from competitors and not building salespeople up. Um, now, in the last five years or so, you're seeing a lot more salespeople come, a lot more companies set up SDRs and BDRs, and we're starting to bring salespeople in, and we're training and developing them, and that's actually opening up an opportunity for more diversity. Um, if you take a look at the other part of that survey, by the way, is diversity on buyers. 
And actually, what is diversifying faster than sellers is the buying community. So um, companies are very focused on hiring professional buyers and they're very focused on many companies have diversity objectives around that. And they're and they're achieving those objectives, thankfully. And so now one, here we go again, CRO's role is changing. CRO needs to have a sales, a commercial organization that's representative of the companies they're selling to and the buyers that they're working with. And I think you're going to see that. I think it's going to have a great impact. I think, I really do think this. I think that what you're going to start to see in the years ahead are people in school who at some point in their second or third year start saying, you know what, I think I would like to go into sales. We've never had that before. I mean, you need more schools. I mean, I don't think anybody like one sales class sort of, but I think, you know, now these schools are starting to put these programs in place to be able to say, this is something you can do. It's something that it can be a great profession, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's so crazy, longer topic, but just crazy. If there's, you know, not more, more schools with, with more programs. Cause it's, I'm not just one of the easiest jobs, but it's something anybody can do. Right. So, you know, especially if you're, you know, liberal arts. It's art or, a great profession. Selling yeah. is a wonderful profession. It, it has been a, it has been a gift to me, and I cherish that I have. Yeah, it's been a gift. It's it yeah. it's taken care of me. It's taken care of my family. It's given me an opportunity to travel all over the world, work with an amazing number of people. So good. Now, what, what about here? We're uh, getting getting close to then. So you've been uh, amazing. Thanks, and didn't get to uh, probably half the questions I wanted to. But um, what about examples of any kind of one, two, three sales leaders that you uh, kind of respect and why? Oh, um, so let me let me pick um, let me pick a couple that that may not um, be so obvious. So when I was at Sony, um, this guy, Charlie Steinberg, who was, who's now in his 80s, um, was responsible for sales. He worked, he ran sales for a company you'd never heard of before called Ampex, and there's no reason you would have known them, but, um, and then went to work for Sony. And, and Charlie was the kind of guy who, and this literally is true, I watched this guy take two lunches and two dinners on the same day. You know, we would do a sales conference and he would go, at the lunch, you know, in the big sales conference and everything, he would go around and shake every salesperson's hand. He was the hardest working seller. But what he did that was so amazing to me, and I'll tell you why I admire him for this, was he had a work ethic around preparation that was unbelievable. I, I can remember having to be in his office. It's, I was a young man, salesperson, called me in his office 6.30 in the morning to prep him because he had his customer call that day. And it was at 6.30 in the morning. And I asked him, why are we doing it so early? He goes, my mind is fresh. I want to know exactly what's going on. This is my perfect time. This is when you're going to prep me. What that showed me was he saw sales as a profession. Now, he, this guy, by the way, was an engineer out of MIT, MIT trained engineer. He worked on color television. That was his claim to fame. He invented color. He was one of the team members who invented color television. Right? Worked his way up through tech sales. Ended up running Sony's um, for what we called our professional group. We're kind of what HPE uh, is today. But he had such a great, but one of the final things that I will never to this day forget was how much he loved the process. He loved it. He loved learning about customers. He loved learning what their problems were. He loved learning how to help solve their problems. He, I, I can, I remember him, we did, used to do these huge trade shows. And I remember the end of the day of one of the trade shows for him sitting next to a customer on the floor of the trade show, you know, just sitting there 
solving a problem, a sales problem. And, and I will, Randy, never forget that. I have tried for, I guess I've been, I'm 62. So what am I selling 40 years now? I still try to be that good. That's awesome. Great, great memory there. So, so, so good. Um, and uh, in closing here, what about any PG uh, Randy story? Oh, well, oh, they have to be PG. Well, all Randy stories are PG. That's not a problem. Well, I, I think one of the most, so, so for the audience to know, Randy and I spent a couple of years following Mark Hurt around the country, the world, um, visiting customers. And often it was Randy and I going because at the time, HP has a very big channel and lots of direct customers. And a lot of our direct customers also bought through the channel. So Randy and I would go out and, you know, for a period of time, Randy and I were kind of responsible to make sure all the customers were getting uh, taken care of and the sales organization was running well. And, um, you know, as a the guy who ran the channel, we weren't quite as buttoned up as those enterprise guys were. <laughs> so one of the things that happened was I was on stage one day doing a presentation and I, it was an internal presentation and Randy, Randy got up on stage with me and, and, <laughs> and told me what part of my suit was acceptable and not acceptable if I was going to be an enterprise salesperson. And I never forgot him doing that. You did, you did it in such a wonderfully fun way. The audience had a huge chuckle, chuckle over it. Um, but it also said a lot about how much you respected your profession. And that was something I always loved about working with you. You had a great respect for what your for the profession of selling. So my hats off to you. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure, pleasure working with you every day. Awesome. Thank you so much. Me, me, me means a lot. Uh, great, great times for sure. So uh, time flies. So you've been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, so for those that have watched or want to share it, Tucker kind of repost this uh, everywhere afterwards. And certainly for those that are looking for any uh, help and guidance and go to market or other ways, sales and marketing, Gartner has a uh, fantastic practice there. And uh, next week, we're going to have um, Brad Rinklin, who is the CMO of uh, Infoblocks, uh, who's a great uh, CMO. And he's got some great partners in crime with uh, Mitch Breen as CRO, Joe Gately running uh, the Americas. I'm sure that'll be great. So, uh, Tucker, thanks for your help behind the scenes. Uh, for those that are sales community members, thanks. If you're not, come join. And uh, for Gong, the Revenue Intelligence Sponsor of Sales Community, thanks as well. Everybody have a great day. Good selling, everybody.